Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week it's time for a classic album dissection of Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We'll talk with a musician who played on the record and some music writers about what makes the record so iconic. Let's get to it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Greg, I think we have to start with a little bit of the context of the times. You know, the turbulence of the late 60s, everybody seems to think that it stopped in 1968, the pinnacle, those assassinations, the riots. In fact, like a bad hangover or a nightmare that you can't wake up from, uh, really the mid-70s, into the mid-70s was a very dark time. I went back and looked at 1974. We have Nixon finally resigning, Mm -hmm. you know, Watergate, uh, the denouement, and Gerald Ford uh, coming in and pardoning him. And, uh, you know, bombings. Uh, There was a great book I read a few years ago, Days of Rage, America's Radical Underground by Brian Burrow, that, uh, you know, what you often think about uh, anti-war protesters bombing uh, FBI offices, that sort of thing, uh, that it it reached a pinnacle in the 60s. No, no, no. It was the Mm mid-70s where we saw this, not only in the U.S., uh, groups like the FALN and and left-wing radical groups, but but around the world, uh, several key tragic IRA bombings in the Troubles over in the UK, uh, you know, a fascist group uh, in uh, hitting a train between Italy and West Germany, uh, bombings by the left in Japan. Um, it's a violent time where people just can't seem to talk to one another. And mm-hmm. and you can hear it in some of my favorite albums released uh, that year, the same year uh, or just before Dylan would release Blood on the Tracks. Neil Young is in the same place as Dylan <laughs> with On the Beach, right? Robert Wyatt uh, of The Soft Machine releases Rock Bottom, mm-hmm. which which is a title that really stands for the times. He's, he's uh, you know, finding catharsis in being paralyzed. Richard and Linda Thompson are still married, but I want to see the bright lights tonight is fraught with tension. Mm-hmm. And Van Morrison is in a dark place, too, with Veden Fleece, emotional turmoil in that record. And then elsewhere, you see music 
really straying far from what Dylan had been doing and planting the seeds of everything that'll come, making Dylan, like, you know, the question which has been asked for his entire six-decade career, is he still relevant? Mm -hmm. You know, you have Kraftwerk's Autobahn coming out and saying, hey, there's a new synth sound to come. And, uh, you know, Joni Mitchell is is swerving into jazz with Court and Spark. Uh, Barry White can't Mm -hmm. get enough, right? Disco is on the horizon. Um, you know, what does Bob Dylan have to say anymore? And where is he in his life? Yeah, uh, 74 was a big year because Dylan had basically been out of the public eye for like seven years. You know, he uh, had had that motorcycle accident when he'd moved to Woodstock mm-hmm. in uh, July of 66. He was newly married to Sarah Lowndes. Uh, they had four children. And Dylan basically went off the road uh, after the motorcycle accident. He just kind of holed up and was a dad. And apparently a very good father from uh, the reports that we got. He was very attentive uh, and, 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 and a husband mm-hmm. at, at that time. Uh, so he was, uh, it, he was releasing records with increasingly less acclaim. People were wondering, what is Bob up yeah, to? We're not, yeah. we're not quite getting this newer music that he's doing. It was a, a, a far cry from the peak period that he had. Have in the, the times passed him by. Exactly. So things start to shift. In November 73 already had done recording sessions with the band, Reunited. Mm. When they last played together, uh, the band was known as the Hawks in that apocal tour of the UK when they were getting booed on stage for every night electric, for being yeah. electric uh, as opposed to folkies. Uh, now they were coming back as sort of the, you know, oh my God, this is coming back to us, and we are greeting them with open arms and open wallets. Forty-day mm. tour in the beginning of 1974 that sold out sports arenas. It was kind of groundbreaking at the time. Mm. These guys are playing hockey arenas and filling them with people, right? Um, so the band is back together with Dylan, and, and Planet Waves uh, goes to number one, and suddenly Dylan's back in the spotlight, right? But meanwhile, his marriage is starting to fall apart. You know, the fact that he went back on the road, uh, he and uh, Sarah had purchased a home in California in 1973. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people can relate to the fact that once you do like a home rehab, you start building out your house, you're going to argue <laughs> with your wife. And your wife's going to argue with you, you even know? Even if you're Bob Dylan? Yeah, <laughs> even if you're Bob Dylan. And apparently things just escalated. They, mm. they started uh, arguing for the first time in their marriage where they were really kind of at odds with each other. Uh, Bob started drinking smoking again, you mm. know, uh, and heading out. Eventually they split up. They broke up. Uh, in 1974, now, they Bob, were not of yet course, divorced. Bob, of course, denies that Blood on the Tracks is about the relationship with Sarah unraveling. Jacob, his son, to whom, as you said, he was uh, very attentive in the early years, yeah. says that's my parents uh, talking about each other. Yeah. That's what that album is. You know, but Bob always, uh, you know, whenever we think we have him nailed, he'll say the opposite. Well, he's, he's given like different versions of that record for, for years. Yeah. But the point was that he wrote a bunch of songs immediately after he and Sarah had sort of split up. Uh, uh, Sarah stayed in the house in California, mm. and Bob moved uh, apparently to, to Minnesota mm-hmm. for a while, back where, he, you know, the state where he was born. Back to his roots. And uh, he calls up John Hammond, his mentor at Columbia Records, and said, I've written a lot of private songs, mm. and I want to record these songs uh, in the fall of 74. So suddenly we've got a new Dylan album uh, in the works. Uh, this time he's not going to record it with the band, he, as he had with Planet Waves. He goes back to the scene of his greatest moments. He goes back to Studio A at A&R Studios in New York, where mm. he'd recorded some of his best records in the 60s, 
Phil Ramone comes in as the producer. Phil now owns that studio. And uh, Ramones assembles his band, uh, led by Eric Weisberg, the, the great banjo and guitar player, mm-hmm. and his deliverance band, these top session players. So they're, they're working this session in, uh, in New York. And in the fall of 74, five days, Dylan's kind of a remote figure in the studio. These songs are like freaking everybody out. Yeah. They're very private, very... Uh, the tone of the music is very dark. Well, and one of them that you're going to yeah. talk about uh, yourself is uh, probably the nastiest song he's ever written. Right, right. And there, so, and, and the band just never really connected with him because he was in a, he was in his own space in mm-hmm. the studio, and the record is set for release. Uh, before Christmas of that year, they wanted to put uh, Columbia wanted to put it out in '74. The liner notes had been mm-hmm. written, the packages already, and then Dylan goes back to Minnesota, plays it for his brother. And his brother's going, Bob, I don't know if this is cutting it. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and Bob listens. That's uh, really fascinating mm-hmm. to me. You know, all the Dylan books I've read, yeah. uh, that relationship with his brother is, is, is not really probed enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think it's great that at this stage in his career, this icon, you know, yeah. it still has people in his life who he'll listen to. Because mm-hmm. that so often doesn't happen. The superstar becomes, you know, it tunes out all negative criticism. Very, very true. And I think Bob was starting to have doubts, too, because he'd listen to the record again. And he goes, hmm, I don't know. And he played it for his brother. And his brother sort of confirmed some of those feelings. Mm-hmm. There's now people who say that original version of the record is the record. It should have been the one they put out. People like Robbie Robertson, his the yeah. compadre in the band, Joni Mitchell, who'd heard it, you know, said, why didn't he put this out? But Bob was going in a different place, and, and you know, suddenly these local guys that uh, we're going to be talking to here in a minute uh, did, in fact, play on this record, didn't get credit for it because they never were able to change the sleeve uh, liner notes when it's, the record came out. It's one of the out. great stories in it rock history. <laughs> it, you know? I mean, because he's back in minute. You know, it, it, you would have thought Columbia could make hay of that. Bob Dylan returns to the folk scene of Minnesota, where he came from, and plays with these guys who all have a rep in Min- Minneapolis, right. St. Paul. You know, and they were real players. They were roots players. Mm-hmm. They loved this music. That's where he came from. So in two days, he has an inc- incredibly successful uh, run with this group mm-hmm. of guys. Two days, they record five songs, and Bob's pleased. He yeah. said, these five songs are going to replace the ones that are already on the album. These versions are better, in his viewpoint, fit the album better than the originals. So we're going to talk about that a little bit as well. Before we get to the interviews, Greg, we're each going to play a song uh, that we think uh, really resonates with us and epitomizes the album. Uh, We talk a lot in the interviews about Tangled Up in Blue, so we chose other songs. And I had to go with Shelter from the Storm, uh, the second to last track on the record. The Dylanologists Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, say that he's uh, comparing, uh, you know, grabbing things from Yates here. It starts with... Um, Christian uh, symbolism up top. Um, It it, it is trying to find in love an escape from all the crap in the world. Like I said, 68, everybody thinks, no, no, no. 74 is a dark time in America, in the world, for Dylan, and and it's resonating with him. And he's looking for shelter from the storm. And he's hoping to find it in a new relationship. Um, 
And he doesn't, because the way the song turns around, uh, there's amazing cynicism. I mean, look at the way it starts. Here's the Christian symbolism. It was in another lifetime, one of toil and blood, when blackness was a virtue, the road was full of mud. I came in from the wilderness, a creature void of form. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. And it's like, wow, we mm. all want a relationship like that. But by the end, he's he's getting nasty and and you're gonna like i said you're gonna talk about him being even nastier beauty walks a razor's edge someday i'll make it mine if i could only turn back the clock to when god and her were born wow wow now he's wishing her like that she never existed mm. so so much from for shelter from the storm there is no shelter for bob at this dark point well, i'm living in a foreign country but i'm bound across the line Beauty walks a razor's edge, someday I'll make it mine. If I could only turn back the clock to when God and her were born. Come in, she said, I'll give ya shelter from the storm. Shelter from the Storm, one of the, my my standout track from uh, Blood on the Tracks yeah. by Dylan. But only because you won the wrestling match. <laughs> we had an arm wrestling match, and you got the next one. Well, I really think Idiot Wind is the key to the record, mm -hmm. and it's interesting that he chose to re-record this one. Uh, the original version is pretty dark, and it's pretty low-key. Um, it, it's Dylan. I, I, I think it's the darkest place he's ever gone to in many ways, oh, which is yeah. saying a lot. Yeah. And it's also one of the most bilious tracks he's ever recorded. I mean, it's savage. It's absolutely a savage put down uh, of uh, someone very close to him who he feels betrayed by. Uh, hence the connection to um, who is soon his soon to be former wife. Uh, you can see why people make the connection. Dylan has always danced around the idea that he was writing directly about Sarah. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to escape the idea that he is, in fact, hurt in this song. And he's attacking this person. Lashing out. Uh, you know, this is in the tradition of like a Rolling Stone or Ballad of a Thin Man mm -hmm. or Positively Fourth Street. Those kind of songs where you're going, whoa, he's really mad at someone here, right? Well, and there he tends to be madder at, uh, you know, what he called in another song, the masters of war, the right. powers that be, the right. forces that would stamp out individualism. Here he's mad at a person. I wouldn't want to be on the other end of that. And and the version that he chose is more up-tempo and in and his, um, the, the one he recorded with the Minnesota musicians mm -hmm. uh, is more up-tempo. It's also more savage. The, the phrasing is very pointedly uh, you know, hostile. I mm -hmm. mean, it's cruel. It's a cruel song. It's a cruel song. You know, you're an idiot, babe, you know. Uh, it's a wonder that you still know how to breathe, you know. It's yeah. like these <laughs> kind of lines. I saw him do a version of this song which I believe now, uh, having listened again to the original version of the song that was recorded in New York, was closer to that, that tone, where you get a different feel for the song. The mm. song in New York is very rueful, uh, almost like regret-filled. It's melancholy. And I think the key to the song uh, is in the last verse, instead of you pointing the finger at you, mm -hmm. he starts thinking, singing about we. Mm. We're idiots, babe. It's a wonder we can even feed ourselves. Let's hear a little bit of Idiot Wind from the New York session, the one that he chose to replace later on. We pushed each other a little too far And one day it just turned into a raging storm A hound dog bayed beyond your trees As I was packing up my uniform 
He's changed the lines in these songs over the years. Many There's times. There's at least three different versions of this song yeah. around that period where he changed the lyrics many times. And the song's uh, meaning changes because of that. And I think that's why it's, it's a classic Dylan song. It absolutely is. Now here's a little bit of Idiot Wind from the Minnesota session, the one that actually ended up on the Blood on the Tracks album. And you can hear the difference in tone. I've been double-crossed now for the very last time And now I'm finally free I kiss goodbye the howling beast On the borderline which separated you from me Idiot Wind by Bob Dylan from Blood on the Tracks. We are in the midst of a classic album dissection of Dylan's 15th studio album. When we come back, we'll re-air our interview with musician Kevin Odegaard, where he talked about being called in at the 11th hour to help out Bob Dylan on Sound Opinions. Sound Opinions is sponsored by Factor. Factor's ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning and sets you up for success. Skip the grocery store, prep work, and cooking fatigue. Instead, get chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 meals to choose from per week, including options like keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more, plus over 55 weekly add-ons, you'll have a ton of nutritious and flavorful options. Factor now offers additional options like breakfast, smoothies, juices, snacks, and more to keep you going no matter what's on the schedule. When things get hectic, Factor is flexible. Change your order up every week or pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. So if you want to try Factor and make your life easier, here's what you need to do. Head to factormeals.com slash soundops50 and use code soundops50 to get 50% off. That's code soundops50 at factormeals.com slash soundops50 to get 50% off. Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island. Since 1988, Goose Island's been brewing beers in the spirit of Chicago. You can find IPAs, Lemonade, Shandy, and limited releases in-store or at one of Goose's venues in Chicago. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago's Beer. And we are back. This week, we're doing a classic album dissection of Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks. Next, we revisit an interview we did way back in 2001 with Kevin Odegaard. Kevin was pulled in to the emergency Minnesota recording sessions for the album when Dylan decided at the 11th hour to uh, remake much of it. He was a guitarist, and he ended up contributing much more. Kevin, you and I have talked about this before, but... uh... This is a, a pretty undocumented still uh, that uh, you and your, your friends uh, in Minneapolis played on this record. Still sort of a lost piece of, of rock history. I'm pretty familiar with all the rock bios, and, and it's, it gets mentioned in passing, and, and still some of the facts get wrong. Uh, tell us the story of, of how you came to work on uh, Blood on the Tracks in that uh, winter of 75. got a phone call. I was a railroad brakeman. I thought it was the uh, crew caller didn't want to go to work. It was 10 below outside. It was freezing. So I, I, I ignored it. And uh, it just kept ringing and ringing and finally picked it up. And it was uh, David Zimmerman looking for a guitar, a very particular guitar. David Zimmerman being Bob's brother. Right. Who I had uh, been friends with for some time, and he had been managing my career. It was a 
1937-0042, Martin, and uh, that's exactly what he asked for. I don't know why. Uh, I think it was known uh, in in circles or became known in music circles later as the Joan Baez guitar. It was a small body guitar that had a particularly good sound in a recording studio. It didn't overpower the microphones during the 1970s. So uh, I knew David was up to something. I knew Bob was in town before the before the phone call was over because David didn't play guitar, and I just put two and two together and figured, well, Bob's in and he he, he needs a guitar. I had no idea at the time uh, the opportunity that was about to present itself. And so, what happened? Did you end up going to a session with this guitar? Well, I called up my pal. Uh, Chris Weber, who owned the Podium Music Shop in Dinkytown, one of Dylan's old hangouts. And uh, Chris was, uh, was pretty astounded. And, and as a matter of fact, I just heard the, the exact story about five minutes ago. A guy had walked in from, uh, from a local suburb just a few days earlier with the exact guitar Dylan was looking for in a case, almost untouched. And Chris said, well... Yeah, I happen to have that guitar. I think there were three or four phone calls exchanged from that point forward. And Chris, being a music shop owner, was used to flaky musicians like myself calling him and trying to con him out of, you know, very valuable instruments. <laughs> I, I don't know how many are in the world today. I, I actually have Chris as a resource in the room. How many are there, Chris? 20 or 40? Probably 20 in, in the world of this kind of guitar. Wow. And he had one of them. So I, I struck gold on my first phone call. It was just serendipity. It was, it, I don't know. I don't know what happened. But I called David back, and he said, oh, well, that's good, because Bobby's in town, and he's not real happy with the, the stuff that he did in New York. And I said, well, what's that? He said, well, he's, he's just finished an album, and we've got the jackets printed, and... Um, He's just not happy with it. He feels it needs more punch and wondered if you could help us line up some musicians. So um, right away I put myself on top of the list. and uh... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You nominated yourself to play? Justifiably. You're, track, you're finding one of 40 guitars in the world for the guy. Yeah, that, that, that's fair. <laughs> Our conversation was short and sweet It nearly swept me off of my feet and I'm back in the rain I said, well, what, what are we looking for? And, and, and we, we talked about it for a while. David tracked down uh, Billy Peterson, Bill Berg, who were the, the very finest jazz bass and, and drummer, the, the, the very finest uh, in the Twin Cities, possibly one of the best in, in the country, at a group uh, called Natural Life. He chose them, and, and I came up with Greg Inhofer. And uh, then I called back Chris Weber to try and seal the deal on this guitar and get this guitar down to the sessions, because one of the things that David Zimmerman had asked me to do was shut the heck up. Don't tell anybody about this. Uh, wanted to preserve the preserve the uh, secrecy of the session, mm-hmm. 
I didn't want a lot of uh, extra people around bothering Bob. So we uh, uh, we went back and forth. Chris uh, uh, negotiated himself onto the session. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like this. This sounds like a remarkably like the Al Cooper story from 1965. About Al fair. Cooper just happened that's to fair. sit in that. Yeah, that's cool. Where Cooper's did you go? No organ player. He can't play that. Yeah, organ. right. Now <laughs> I've I've lived in 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 uh, Minneapolis twice, Kevin. Where did you guys record? Sound eighty. Mm-hmm. It was a it, Herb Pilhoffer's state-of-the-art studio. It was really the only only place uh, uh, David would have chosen because the house musicians were Peterson and Berg. Mm-hmm. And another funny story. There's a funny story with every sentence of this story because Peterson shows up and thinks he's at another ad gig. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he sits down and he looks up and there's Bob Dylan. And he says, hey, hey, man, what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, this incredibly weird combination with Dylan of generosity toward musicians, the willingness to let Cooper try to play an organ party, never played, the willingness to let you guys come in, you know, ha- having the jazz guys play on, on his record, uh, on this record, in a fairly rock vein, you know, um, stuff like that. And yet, also this weird stinginess, this weird, you know, he's had this great touring band for the last couple of years, but he isn't making records with them. And then you guys do these classic versions of these songs but you don't get credited for them I mean I mean, that's got to rankle a little bit and where do those two sides of this guy come from? I polled everybody when I did an article recently on, on how rankled everybody was and uh, there were some yeah there were some mild uh, feelings about that uh, they've passed, it's been 26 years we've all had a chance to realize that this is basically something we're going to be able to share with our grandchildren. And But then, just very, very recently, um, I was asked to do this recollection for for, uh, for Minneapolis-St. Paul magazine, and, 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 and Greg, I was encouraged by you to do this, and you helped me with some of the early drafts, because uh, it's, it's, it's really a piece of history that's been missed. Uh, reported, misconstrued, people have been left out. Even the new Howard Sounds book, as good as it is, leaves out mm-hmm. two of the musicians. Well, leaves out all of the musicians. Mm, it's yep. just Peterson and Berg in there. And they were truly the geniuses in the session, in my view. Berg and Dylan were the two the two bright, shining stars in, in the session. Um, um, the rest of us were... were uh, were there, and we were. I think we we came in in the right places, and and certainly everybody played their parts well. But I I, I saw Berg is really really brilliant on the drums. Mm-hmm. But but you guys you guys have sort of uh, you, you guys seem pretty cool with the idea that uh, you know you were able to plan the session, and there's uh, there's not a real you know lingering bitterness here that you've sort of been written out of uh, a lot of the histories. Uh, one of the, one of the great records of all time, and you really don't haven't gotten the credit that you uh, deserve for playing on it. Well, no, we're not cool about it. We're begging RIAA, and we're begging uh, Columbia Records, and we're we're you know we're writing letters to to uh, the Dylan office in New York, Jeff Rosen there, and, mm-hmm. and we were told at the sessions, um, and I've got two of the guys in the room with me right now, so they'll shut me up if I if I uh, don't tell the truth here. But uh, we were told at the sessions that hey guys, this is the this is the cover. Uh, it's been printed. You're not going to be on the first printing, mm-hmm. right? Um, so we all kind of naturally hoped and prayed that we'd be on 
the second pressing. Yeah, right, right. right. 20, <laughs> 26 years later, you're still and, buying and how um, many pressings blood on the tracks? Blood on the tracks. With, uh, yeah. with uh, oh, these New York God knows how many. Um, the the other thing about uh, the credits is when we finally did get credits, and I just discovered this recently. It was on Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits, Volume Three, hmm. and um, I'm Ken Odegaard. <laughs> Billy is Billy Preston, who is, you know, completely a Beatles guy. A different person. <laughs> Instead of Peterson. And, uh, That's amazing. That's and just Chris shoddy. Weber's name is perennially spelled with uh, the wrong number of B's in it. It has one B in it. So we were all very, very, very grateful to get the recognition, and I'm sure it was uh, somebody at Columbia Records who... who uh, Said, well, let's actually list the musicians on this. Somebody. Just would have been nice if they spelled your names that's, right. That's, that's that's disastrous. But Kevin, we we got to talk about this music. You'd pointed out at the very start of this conversation that David Zimmerman had indicated to you that Bob was dissatisfied with what had happened in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, something happened in the studio with in Minneapolis with you guys that changed this stuff. You obviously weren't playing the songs the exact same way they played them in New York. Something happened. We what had a happened great on conversation Tan- about this tonight mm-hmm. with everybody in the room that was there. What we, happened we, with Tangled Up in Blue? Right. With Tangled Up in Blue, exactly. Um, what happened was it was tame. It was laying there. It was it was doing nothing. He, he, he went through it, and, and I, I just, serendipity again, I just happened to be sitting next to him in the room, and he, and he quietly turned to me and he said, well, what do you think of that? And I said, well, it's passable. And he looked at me, and he gave me that look that he gave Donovan in the, in the, in the documentary, <laughs> Don't Look Back. And he looked at me again, and he, Passable? What, what do you mean, Passable? That doesn't sound good. Passable? What Passable? What do you mean, Passable? Early one morning, the sun was shining. He was lying in bed. Wondering if she changed it all of her hair while still red. You know, and he went and do his thing. Yeah. And I thought for sure... Um, uh, that was the end of your session. I was going to be roasted, and, and it was all over for me. And all the other musicians were, you know, kind of waiting for the outcome of this one. And I was sweating right through my clothes. Finally, he looked up and said, okay, well, you know, what do we got to lose? Let's give it a shot. He got about halfway through a verse, and it kicked ass. Early one morning, the sun was shining. I was laying in bed, wondering if she'd change it all if her hair was still red. Her folks, they said our lives together sure was gonna be rough. They never did like Mama's homemade dress, Papa's bankbook wasn't big enough. And I was standing on the side of the road, rain falling on my shoes. Heading out for the East Coast, Lord knows I paid some dues getting through. So he said, stop to Paul Martinson in the booth and went right into it, reaching for the notes, much more urgency, mm-hmm. much more energy in the song. Uh, one take, that's it. It was never remixed. That two-track mm. rough from the session is, wow. on, the re- is on the record. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Mm-hmm. So not One up. of the most gorgeous. I've got the harmonica player that's working with us. Uh, we were just talking about that brilliant solo, and Dylan is, is no virtuoso, but that solo at the at the tail end of Tangled Up in Blue is like is like a, you know a musical Picasso. It's really very special.
Kevin, you know, you know, as a Minneapolis guy, I mean, there's always this thing that I call the Prince Syndrome, where an artist gets to a certain point where he has, has gotten rid of all the people who came up with him, you know, all the people who were his managers, his friends, his bandmates, and he's surrounded by this new crew of people once he's become successful, and he no longer has the fortitude to have people say, no, that's a bad idea to be challenged. And one of the things I think is encouraging about Dylan is he's he's always putting himself in situations where people will say to him, "Hey Bob, that's not so good. Try it this way." In his band says, "I just I just think it it's interesting that then he doesn't credit them." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's well, I don't know that that many people challenge him. I I've, I've always, you know, I've read all the books and Well, I, I think the current band is kicking his butt for the last 5, 6, 7 years. I sure hope so. I hope you're right about that because, you know, I I've been around him a number of times before and since, and the man is surrounded by yes men, and mm. uh, he's made some records that you can tell, or was at, at, at certain points. But I'm no, uh, I was no genius for speaking up. I just told him what I thought. You know, it was just, it was just the way I felt about it. I didn't really have much to lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of the key, and the serendipity of that whole session, just being able to go in there with a group of guys he'd never met before. Uh, go in there and record one take of a song. Yeah, yeah. It ends up being a classic that's played on radio for 25 years. The uh, guy that really kicked things off was Chris Weber. He went into the booth with Chris Weber, who's here in the room with me now, and, and he struck up a conversation with him. He's warming Chris up, striking up a conversation. Hey, Chris, do you write songs? Well, play me something you wrote. And he played something, and it was really good. Chris played it for me the other day. And really a nice folk piece. And Dylan said, hey, well, that's pretty good. Dude. Play me something else you wrote. <laughs> and he played him another one. Dylan was developing this great relationship, and he said, well, you really, really play well. And listen to this. And then he played this C minor chord. that just sounded, you know, we heard it from outside, and, and Chris heard it there and later told me that, you know, it sounded a little odd to begin with. Once he learned it, Dylan sent him out of the booth and had him teach the teach the song to the band. So uh, Chris, who's on, uh, oh, I, I think at least probably four out of the five things recut, at least three, probably four out of the five things that are recut. Chris made major contributions to all those songs, mm-hmm. and and was really a spark in terms of the uh, in, in terms of the guitar sound, that crispy, uh, anonymous, bright. Minneapolis sound that Paul Nelson refers to in, in the Rolling Stone uh, reviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Chris Weber. Well, Chris Weber, Billy Peterson, Bill Berg, um, Kevin Odegaard, um, you know, rock history thanks you, even if Bob Dylan doesn't. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for being on Sound Opinions. we got to move on. When we come back, we talk to Paul Metza and Rick Shefchik about their book on the re-recording process of the album. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island. Since 1988, Goose Island has been brewing award-winning beers in Chicago that are inspired by this city. 
Cake 312 Lemonade Shandy, Tropical Beer Hug Double IPA, and a rotating series of hazy IPAs only available in Chicago. Uh, you know, every time we go down to Goose Island, there's another one that they're pushing on us. That's right. You and know, they're all good. Absolutely. And uh, what supporters of, of musical culture, you know, in, in the city of Chicago and elsewhere, uh, if you go to a show in Chicago and you see that Goose Island uh, sign, you know, you know you're in good hands. Uh, they're music fans as well as great uh, beer makers at Goose Island. So we're really proud to be associated with them. The Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago's Beer. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And we're back. We'd like to welcome the co-authors of a new book, Blood in the Tracks, the Minnesota musicians behind Dylan's masterpiece, Paul Metza, welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks for having me. And Rick Sefchik. Rick, how are you? Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to be here. You know, we have to ask any uh, Dylanologist uh, with a new book like this, my God, is there a popular musician about whom more has been written in the last century? Paul, why did you think it was worth you and Rick digging deep into what essentially was two days two very historic days that helped produce a masterpiece. But what was the impetus for writing Blood in the Tracks? Well, it, it actually started uh, in 2001. I produced a show called The Million Dollar Bash at First Avenue and 7th Street Entry. We had 40 musicians uh, from the Twin Cities. And uh, I had actually gotten uh, email requests to play at a, for a bunch of Dylan fans in Turkey who had uh, a horse farm and a sailing operation. And while I was considering that, I thought, well, it would, Minneapolis would be really remiss and Minnesota in general at large to not do a tribute to Bob Dylan. So I got a hold of a guy named Nate Krantz at First Avenue, who uh, just started working there. He was a young Dylan fan. And uh, I called my friend Kevin Odegaard, who played uh, uh, guitar on Tangled Up in Blue. And I said, what are the chances of putting together the original guys who played on Blood on the Tracks. So he got on the phone and a couple days later, he called me, he said, we've got five of the six guys that are ready to play. Now, what was interesting, they had not played together and in several instances seen each other since those two nights uh, in December 1974. So they were kind of the highlight of the show. They came up and they played the entire record sold out show, huge success, 1,200 people. And uh, that Odegaard kind of suggests that that was the origin for them to restart their campaign to get their credits on the record. Because when the record came out, their names weren't listed on it. It just included the musicians from the New York sessions. So several years later, in 2018, when More Blood, More Tracks came out, the guys finally, what I like to say, got their ring. They finally got their names on the record. Yeah. So that was kind of the genesis of the restart 
for the campaign for that. And and you go into this some in the book, you know, partly Dylan was reconsidering those tracks at such a late stage and, you know, at home on vacation <laughs> in Minneapolis. Uh, his brother says, well, you know, do some recording, uh, tackle them again if you want. But but the covers, the LP covers were already at the printing plant, right? Yeah. And then they were promised when the second pressing of the record came out that their names would appear on the record, but that never happened. So it was. Uh, but do you think that you know, was intentional, or Dylan was just like he was moving on already? Well, I think everybody was uh, that played on the sessions was paid standard scale, musician scale, and uh, I think that was kind of part of it. Dylan moves quick. I also think uh, Rick and I posited, and along with a couple of guys in the band, that because in the case of Tangled Up in Blue. Kevin Odegaard suggested to Bob that they should change the key from the key of G to the key of A. And then uh, Greg Inhofer also made some suggestions uh, on the songs he played on that possibly there might be some copyright issues. So I think the best way to have for Columbia Records to deal with that is just to, hey, we paid them, let's move on. Yeah. And that key change and Bill Berg's drumming are really what, by all accounts, by all the, the obsessive fans, that's what made the song. Well, what's interesting is um, after the book came out, uh, a fellow emailed me. Kevin Odegaard put out a book about the sessions in 2002 called Simple Twist of Fate. And they did a book release for that with all of the guys at a museum in Minneapolis in 2005. And a guy was there, told a great Bill Berg story that Bill said there's no way he could have kept up with that nine-minute version of Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts had it not been for the fact for his training playing all the polka gigs up on the Iron Range when he was growing up, because he was, hmm. Ber Berg was a hibbing native as well. The curfew had been lifted and the gambling wheel shut down. Anyone with any sense had already left town. He was standing in the doorway looking like the Jack of Hearts. You know, Paul, your book with Rick uh, kind of fleshes out the story of these musicians. Uh, you know, they are, they're good at, at what they do, but they're basically anonymous people. They're not famous musicians, but they're very good at what they do. They're working gigs. They had careers before and after uh, Blood on the Tracks, but uh, Blood on the Tracks certainly didn't broaden their, you know, uh, profile in large part because they weren't on the credits for the record. Nobody really knew that they had played on it until the box set came out for those sessions. Uh, what, 2018? Amazing that it wasn't corrected until that point. Yes, one of our big points that we wanted to make in the book, when uh, over the years, the musicians from Minneapolis got slagged off as just garage band musicians, anonymous, faceless people that didn't add anything to the record. Well, it wouldn't have sold two and a half million copies had these Minneapolis sessions not uh, been included on the original Blood on the Tracks. And I had moved to Minneapolis in 1978. I was very familiar with Bill Berg and Billy Peterson. They were the house rhythm section at Sound 80 Studios. They played on most of Leo Kotke's early records, and I was a huge Leo Kotke fan. 
so one of the points in the book was these guys were anything but garage band musicians. These guys were some of the best musicians in Minneapolis. And you know, Jim, uh, you've, you've been in Minneapolis. If you're as good as in Minneapolis, you're as good as anywhere in the country. So that was the point, not only to get these guys' names in the book, but to say what great musicians they were and what they added uh, to the record, which is, you know, uh, proof is in the pudding. You know, Rick, um, I'm glad Paul just mentioned uh, that there's a Minneapolis vibe, a Minneapolis personality. And uh, I think one of the things you both do well in the book is to underscore, you know, Dylan came from this place. He related to these guys. And, you know, that and the fact that his brother brought these guys in. And, uh, uh, you know, t- talk about the Minneapolis of it all. Well, that is the other real reason that Paul and I wrote the book. One is to give props to these Minneapolis musicians who a lot of people seem to think really weren't qualified to re-record half the album. But the other was to explain why it worked. And clearly Mm. it did work. And Paul and I have always thought, because Paul knows these musicians so well, and and, uh, you know I've lived most, if not all of my life in Minnesota, we've always thought that the reason Blood on the Tracks worked so well with the Minneapolis musicians was the shared DNA that Dylan has with them. They all grew up um, in the same general musical milieu, although Dylan was a little bit ahead of them in terms of uh, you know just his age, and you know came up playing mostly folk music. But even before that, he was a rock and roller in, in uh, Hibbing High School. Mm-hmm. So all of these guys really did have an understanding of what the Minneapolis music scene was, how good it was, and were convinced that Dylan felt much more comfortable playing with these guys, even though he didn't know them. He was introduced to every one of them that night by his brother. But we just think there was a shared vibe there that made that session so much more successful than the New York sessions. Yeah, your book really details how Dylan had a comfort level with these guys. He was talking to them just like they were peers. You know, it wasn't like I'm dictating to you. I mean, the big revelation for me was, well, he showed him the chords. <laughs> he showed him, okay, this is how we play this song. He didn't do that all the time with musicians that he worked with. Well, clearly um, in New York, he didn't do that at all. Mm-hmm. And that was probably the basis of the failure of those sessions. And when I say failure, I mean relative to the Minneapolis sessions, because uh, a lot of good music came out of New York. But uh, as as we pointed out and has been mentioned before, the New York musicians felt very frustrated that he really wasn't helping them learn the songs. And Dylan himself wasn't happy. He knew there was something a little off. I think he walked out of the studio feeling fairly satisfied But as Phil Ramone mentioned later on, the longer a record goes from the time it was recorded to the time it's released, the more the artist has time to start having second thoughts. And since it became a better record anyway, it's fairly clear that those second thoughts that Dylan had probably were starting to bubble up fairly soon. Hmm. Five songs in two days. That's an amazingly productive session. All keepers. Basically half the albums recorded in two days with those Minneapolis guys. They get paid union scale. That's it. You know, your book makes this clear, and it seems like there was a paperwork snafu. Here's where David Zimmerman dropped the ball, right? Somehow there wasn't any paperwork contracts signed to get these guys paid properly, so they never saw any royalties from the recording, which they should have by rights, right? 
Yeah, and Greg Inhofer has suggested, he doesn't know this for a fact, but he thinks that uh, the reason that their names never showed up on the album was that uh, once the first run was done, Columbia thought, uh-oh, we didn't get any signatures from these guys. We didn't get any releases. Who knows what they might claim for their work on that session. So if we keep their names off of the uh, subsequent mm. um, jackets, then maybe maybe they'll, they'll never have a never be in a position to claim any more money. Unbelievable. But, but the funny thing to me was when they had these reunions years later and uh, Eric Weisberg showed up for one of them and uh, Inhofer said, uh, say, Eric, uh, did uh, you get a gold record for uh, uh, Tangled Up in Blue? And he mm. said, yeah, it's been on my wall for a long time. Well, Eric Weisberg doesn't play a note on Tangled <laughs> Up in Blue. And Greg Inhofer was on five of the songs and got nothing. Right. There is that, you know, say the downside of what they called uh, Minnesota nice when I live there is, uh, you know, people in, in Minnesota are self-effacing and salt of the earth and not egotistical. Can't say that about New York. Right. But the downside is sometimes you get stepped on and these guys were well and truly stepped on. You know, people always think, Greg, that this stuff started with the hip hop and sampling uh, controversies. Yeah, right. It's like, you know, people have been getting screwed. And, and, you know, and it was long before Robert Johnson got screwed. Screwed. Right. Our six Minneapolis musicians got yeah. screwed. Say for me that I'm alright. Though things get kind of slow. She might think that I've forgotten her. Don't tell her it isn't so. You guys do a great job of telling the stories about these guys as working musicians uh, before and after the sessions. And, and they continued to work afterward. They, they, they didn't have any greater fame for it. Kevin Odegaard talks about the fact that it was the greatest six minutes of his life, which is both a great thing to see and kind of sad. You know, it's kind of like, that was it. That was the golden moment. I had it and it's gone and, you know, it'll never, I'll never have a moment to equal that. How did the guys hold up in general? Was there, you guys talked to them, you knew them. Did the bitterness ever settle in, you know, where they just felt, screwed royally or did they just sort of ride ride it out without any recriminations not at all i had i got to be friends with almost well with all of them and uh and played with several of them over the years all of them look back on it very positively uh inhofer went through kind of his moments of doubt with it but even now i mean if you would talk to any of them it was you know one of the greatest sessions of their life i mean in minnesota it's like we had you know, two World Series, and uh, in terms of Minnesota moments, it's up there with with those, as well as you know anything else great that happened in Minnesota. But uh, what was interesting, what I found out when I was talking earlier about when Odegaard's Simple Twist of Fate came out, they did the show at the Mill City Museum. Bill Berg said, and we weren't aware of this, or we would have put it in the book, that he was offered the chance to go on the road with Dylan after those sessions, and he turned it down. He ended up going to uh, California and mm -hmm. working with uh, Walt Disney as an animator. But uh, he just got out of the biz for a while. Although he's playing now, he recently recorded with uh, Judy Collins and all of the other musicians, with the exception of Peter Ostrushko and, and Chris Weber, who unfortunately both passed away before Rick got involved with the book, are all still working musicians. Odegaard plays every now and then. He's put out a record or two of original music, but they're all pretty satisfied with being a part of that uh, momentous record. 
I would have to say, honestly, that there's a spectrum of regret among the six musicians. Mm. If you look at uh, Bill Berg, for instance, who went on to be um, a really successful animator at Disney, I doubt that he ever looked back with any sense of regret whatsoever. His life went in a different direction, which satisfied him enormously. Hey, he worked on the, on the Little Mermaid and the Lion King. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. uh, Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, 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 incredible run for him. But you look at Peter Ostrushko, and he could hardly have become more successful than he was as a mandolinist in America. Mm-hmm. I mean, he... Yeah. He, he worked with everybody he wanted to. Kevin is sort of in the middle because I think he did realize, as he said, after playing on Tangled Up in Blue, he kind of knew that was it. That was the peak. And he, and he mm. went on to do interesting things as well. But I'm pretty sure he knew that he wasn't going to do anything much more than that. I think Chris Weber probably had as many regrets as anyone because after the Podium Guitar Store uh, went out of business, that pretty much took him out of music. And that was really his first love. And I I think there was some thought that had their name been on the album, possibly Chris's music career might have lasted a little bit longer. And we know that uh, Kevin Odegaard has uh, mentioned frequently that even though he's not bitter, he does face the reality that uh, things could have gone a lot better for the musicians had they gotten the credit. Mm -hmm. You know, it really is a story of um, regular working musicians a brush with fame there but for the grace of god they might have had more but you know i i was thinking as i was reading it of another uh, a couple of uh, legendary uh, minnesota musicians ray and glover right you know dylan oh, yeah. was so influenced by the that blues duo early on as a youngster you know and the number of times i i saw ray and glover playing you know on a monday night <laughs> Yeah. You know, uh, and half the bar, more than half, is paying no attention, right? But they were making money, playing music, and sometimes that's all you get. Yeah, and Dave Ray became a, a very good friend of mine, and uh, I still see Kerner. If uh, Jim, if you ever get back to the West Bank, about three o'clock in the afternoon, you can go to Palmer's and mm. bump into John doing the New York Times crossword puzzle. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> Dylan says, and and John's not totally on board with it. He said, Bob's memory might be a little skewed here, but but Dylan did some of his first gigs in Minneapolis with John Kerner. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, mm-hmm. credits John with being such a huge influence on himself. So mm-hmm. Kerner looms large in the history of, of music, but uh, certainly a big influence on, on Bob Dylan. Absolutely. Guys, uh, great story. I'm glad you finally gave uh, these worthy musicians the light of day, you know, in terms of recognition, right? The book is called Blood in the Tracks. Highly recommend it. It's about the blood on the track sessions. We've been talking to Paul Metza and Rick Shefchik. We appreciate you guys being on the show. Thanks for having us. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, guys. That wraps up our classic album dissection of Blood on the Tracks. Now we want to hear from you. Where does this album rank for you in the pantheon of Dylan's catalog? Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. Mr. Cott, what is on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have a bounty of riches because uh, there are so many great TV theme songs out there that we just want to play a few of our favorites. And uh, do not forget to check out our bonus podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. 
Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our Columbia College intern is Max Hatlam, and our social media consultant is Katie Cott.